Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got a guest with me all the way from Omaha, Nebraska. I've got Melissa Horrington, who is CFO of a company called Premier Claims. Melissa, hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. Hey, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Melissa, tell me something exciting about you. Oh, something exciting about me. I'm a wife, a mom of two, those chicken nuggets back there over my shoulder, an eight-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl, and they're a CFO of a company. I feel like that takes a lot of my time um, and kind of rounds out all of the things, but I am a Nebraska girl born and raised, something I'm very proud of. I don't know if other people would consider that exciting, but I do. Fantastic. So, CFO of Premier Lames. Most people don't know what that means. I didn't either. So we work property insurance claims. We advocate on behalf of the policyholder. So we go toe-to-toe, head-to-head up against the insurance carrier to hold them accountable to pay out your property insurance claim appropriately, according to the policy that they wrote. Okay, so being CFO, what sort of things does that have you doing within a property claims company? Sure. We're a growing and scaling company. So I think that comes with a lot of things. So my full title though is CFO and VP of operations. So I do feel like I wear kind of all of the hats depending on the day Mm. or maybe even the hour. So as CFO of the company, I'm putting together kind of what that growth plan is, what those hiring needs are as we grow and scale and the budget around all of that. HR does roll up to me. I also oversee the entire IT department, which for a growing and scaling company is not a small undertaking, but also in 2022, when it feels like everybody's put the pedal to the metal and automation, those things roll up to me. And then I also oversee our legal department who handles all of your traditional things that a general counsel or legal department would handle for a company, but also in a unique space of public adjusters. They are our masters of all things policy language. No one can read the fine print of a policy quite like an attorney. So I have an entire attorney um, staff that rolls up to me as well as the typical finance and accounting functions. And then occasionally or more often than I care to sometimes, I put on the operations hat as well. And I'm always having those conversations of efficiencies, how we can do things different, better, faster to continue to serve the insureds that hire us. Fantastic. So that that is a huge, huge scope of responsibility, all of those functions reporting into you. So how many people do you manage in that context? Because it must stretch well beyond just a finance team. Yeah, it certainly does. I have two direct reports on my finance and accounting team. We keep things pretty thin there. I only have eight direct reports as a whole. Most of them are those department heads that we kind of talked about. My entire division of the company, though, I believe we have 35 people that directly roll up to me in some capacity. And then that operations hat kind of sits over all of it. 
but I find that you can actually find a lot of efficiencies in there. If I'm like in and out of all of the workings going on with the company, being able to see how they all work together, that, you know, this team is kind of getting in the way of this team or we're overlapping things, that kind of spaghetti mess and unrolling it and seeing how we can streamline things is what fills my cup. So while it does feel like it can be a lot all at once, they all intertwine. And then ultimately your finance and accounting team is producing, like putting together that packaged good of the financials, which are the results of operations. So then it's really easy to kind of put on that analysis piece when I've been heavily involved in the operations. And then also on that back end, doing that analysis, no one is better trained to spot trends in data than a finance or accounting person. So being able to kind of spot some trends and take it back to the operations piece and say, hey, we have something going on here, good or bad, right? An increase in sales is exciting, but that means I'm going to need more people to work those sales. So I think they all interweave a lot tighter together than people realize, especially kind of the size of the company that we're at right now. Yeah. And we've got in GrowSafe, we've got a business partnering bootcamp. Yes. And one of the things we're talking about in business partnering is kind of taking the finance results and making them real to the rest of the business. Yes. Not about, oh, sales are up by 3% against budget this month. Yep. Oh, look, haven't we done well? And all that boring stuff. Yep. It's about, yeah, sales are going up. We need more people. Here's the, yep. here's the consequence of sales going yeah. up. Here's the consequence of sales going down. Why yep. sales go down? Now, it's all about asking that, so what question? Yes. Yeah, yeah 100%. And it's just like these ripples and having people on your team that can kind of understand the impacts of those ripples and all of the coasts that they'll eventually reach um, and what size those will be when they reach there. I think it's really important. And then I think one of the most important skills you can have in accounting or finance, finance more so, is to be a brilliant storyteller. If you want to fast track, if you want to fast track your career, take the numbers and make them exciting and make them in a way that people can comprehend it that it's a compelling story, but it's also one that you understand, right? If you pick up a book and it just has a ton of big words and you have to just really focus when you're reading it, that like reading comprehension, I find that I don't want to go back to it. But if you pick up a book and it has this great story and you're getting the lessons throughout the story, you can't put it down. And so if that finance person, you have brilliant number crunchers, you have people that can build a better sales spreadsheet than I've ever could even wrap my mind around. But if they can't take that and explain it to a salesperson, they will reach a stall in their career. And I really think if you can be just a brilliant storyteller and bring that data to life, that that is one of the... I don't want to say easiest, but one of the best ways that you can really fast track that career. I feel like I do a lot more storytelling than I do actually analyzing the numbers in that CFO seat. It's a lot of just making sure everybody understands what this means. Yeah. So, Melissa, you've got quite a wide remit and clearly 
the strong accounting skills and very strong interpersonal skills to be able to bring all that together. But how did you get to the position of having that sort of wide CFO and VP operations role? How did your career pan out to get you to where you are now? Yeah, I have a pretty eclectic career, and I really think that is what brought me here. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of it, but I just knew in my heart and when I was in undergrad that I was going to be in public accounting, I was going to become a CPA, I was going to be a partner in 10 years at a top four, I mean, at a big four firm, that's what I was going to do. And then I think it was two months into it, I was like, this is this is not a match for me. And I spent most of my time in public accounting doing audit. And I did audits of nonprofits. And where that was a really great fit for me was every two weeks, you were in a brand new company, a new company with a new accounting system, with new processes, with new ways of doing things. And you had to just dive in. You had to dive in and sort through it and figure it out so you could even get to a place where you could ask questions or you could give your, you know, your ticking and tying and everything else that you needed to do. So that fit my personality so well. What did not was every time you showed up somewhere, nobody wanted me to be there. Yeah. I was like, oh, the auditor's here and put you in a back room somewhere. And that just like was soul sucking to me, but it just absolutely devastated. I'm resonating with a lot of this. And that was yeah, like, is anybody happy to see me? I'm so happy to be here today. I, I jumped out of practice into an insurance company, mm-hmm. literally on the day that I qualified as a as an accountant. Yes. I did not want to do audit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. But there are so many skills there that I still use to this day of like, just jump in and figure it out. Yeah just dive right into the deep end and you know it'll come to you and you got to be immersed in it. I still feel like I do that a lot to this day. From there I went into the nonprofit world because we were doing nonprofit audits and it really spoke to my heart. I worked for an incredible organization and it was there that I learned that you can actually love what you do and you can feel good about what you're doing. And to be honest, I didn't expect to get that from an accounting career to truly feel like the work that I did today made an impact on someone and loved my time there. And I knew immediately I would never again work somewhere where I don't truly love what I'm doing. If it doesn't fill my cup, it wasn't going to be for me because there's jobs out there like that. From there, I went into just as a growth opportunity that came to me, I got recruited out of there and went and worked for a publicly traded company, which was a great experience, a totally different side of things. There, I sat next to the auditors that were there. It felt like 365 days a year, whether it was internal audit or your external audit members sitting right there learned so much. And there I worked for a CFO. I did not report directly to him. We had a couple of steps between him, but Nate, it was the first time I saw that I could potentially ever be a CFO because I view myself as like, I'm not this totally polished, put together person. It'll never be me. And I really thought that that would mean that I couldn't get to this role in my career because this perfectly pressed pantsuit, somebody who doesn't use curse words, which I'll try really hard not to on here, that version of me just isn't 
it didn't exist and I knew it was never going to exist. And I wasn't necessarily super interested in it. And then I worked at this publicly traded company and our CFO, Nate, was just a guy. Yeah. Goofy as can be. And he had such an impact on my career because he would come over. And even though there were several steps between us, he, I only had my son at the time. He knew my son's name. He asked about him. I knew his kids' names. He would come in and be like, oh, my kids were the worst last night. And just like have those conversations. And he was just a guy. He was brilliant at what he did, make no mistake. But it felt like he wasn't up on this pedestal, if that makes any sense. Like total and, it was, yeah. and it was like the first time that I kind of creeped into my head that maybe I didn't need to be this like stereotypical version of a CFO, what I thought that would be. Like maybe I could put that back on my radar. From there, I got another opportunity. I actually went into the entertainment industry. I was the controller for a food and beverage company. And so I handled the finance and accounting for a arena, convention center, and baseball park, which was a totally different side of things. My office was backstage at a Lady Gaga concert or at a March Madness basketball game time of your life as a music lover and sports fan. Like it does not get much more fun than that. And that is where I fell in love with operations because I realized so quickly that in having these finance conversations of like, Hey, what happened to revenue last night? Good or bad. Like, how did we miss the sales mark by so much? And you'd have those conversations with our concessions manager or premium members or whatever else. And they're like, you know what? A totally turns out Taylor Swift fans aren't little girls anymore. They're, you know, 24 year olds who have real careers and can afford three vodka sodas. And we were prepped for popcorn. And that's why we blew those numbers out of the water or having conversations of, you know, not a well-followed basketball team came to March Madness for this year or whatever else of realizing that the data had so much more information than what was immediately quantifiable and needing to dig into it and ask additional questions of like, what happened here? Sometimes it was even as simple as it rained last night. So when everybody had to park and walk in, they went to the restroom. The women went to the restroom to go fix their hair or check out their outfits rather than going to the beer line. And there was just so much more story to tell if you could get into it to really understand the how the operations had this impact on the financials. And you can't just take the numbers for what they are. I tell everyone that if March Madness games were on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. and Taylor Swift concerts were on Wednesdays at noon, I would work there until the end of my career. I had my daughter at that time and having two little ones, those nights and weekends just weren't working for my family anymore. And so from there, I actually went back to the nonprofit for a short period of time in an elevated role. And then I had kind of a chance encountering interaction with the owner and CEO of Premier Claims. And I came in for an interview meeting of sorts, and he and I just clicked immediately And, you know, people that have that it factor that you can't explain exactly what it is, he had it. Yes. And I knew like, no matter what, whether it's premier claims or not, like this guy's going to make something of himself. And the company was in its infant stages. I think it had been open for four months at that time, was already getting some decent traction. He had a long history in this field 
but not necessarily owning and running his own company. And we just hit it off and had this conversation. And I actually told him, you're not ready for somebody full-time yet. It's not time for that. And you're going to get what you pay for in this space. And, and in those first startup days, plus being in kind of an interesting cash cycle of a business here, I was like, you're going to get what you pay for and you need somebody who is going to like carefully dance this tightrope. He said, what you need right now is maybe four hours a week of my time and that time can be done at my kitchen table. And so I started in kind of this 1099 almost consulting capacity and the business boomed. And within six months, I was here full time in this CFO and VP of operations seat. So I've been very fortunate to have kind of a fast tracked career. A lot of it's been on relationships. Almost everywhere I've gone, I've been recruited into those seats because of the relationships I've built and maintained. And then just taking, just absorbing what you can, those learning lessons from every step of that career to see how it can kind of all come together. And I lean on all of that experience every single day of like, gosh, I remember what we used to do here or what we did there or reach out to people. How are you guys handling X, Y, and Z? I think that stuff is super powerful. Yeah. So you've moved as as quite a lot of people do to get that first CFO role. Mm -hmm. You've kind of grown into it with the company that's growing quickly, which is fantastic. Yeah. But that's must put you in a position of now from having a team of virtually no one to having a team that you talked about was was really yeah. big. Okay. Eight, yeah. eight to nine direct reports, but more 35 people wider than that. So leadership. How have you managed to learn to lead mm-hmm. through that period? Yeah, a lot of mistakes. Uh, I think there's learning lessons and mistakes for sure. But throughout my career, I've been very lucky to have some really great leaders There's only one time, and I won't tell you which role it was at, that I had a really bad leader. And there's a lot of lessons from that as well. One thing that excited me about Premier Claims and and was like kind of the deciding factor to jump ship over here, since I'm very risk averse and I was terrified of a startup idea, was it was an opportunity for me to come in and create the culture of a company. And to be the leader that I wanted, the leader that I always wanted within my own career, and then to be able to like really leave my mark. Okay, so tell me me more about that. Tell me more about the leader that you always wanted. Yeah, but I really believe in full autonomy. There's no reason to hire all of these brilliant people and then tell them what to do all day, every day. I am fully comfortable with everyone on my team being better than I am at what they do. Uh, Certainly the people that I oversee, our HR manager is great at what she does and occasionally has to put me in my place. I certainly can't tell our general counsel more about legal things than what he already knows. So kind of getting out of their way. And I really think my job as a leader is to stay out ahead of my team and ask what roadblocks do you see coming? What's getting in your way? And then go sprint out ahead of them and remove that roadblock. That is what I view my role as, not to go to them and say, here's what you should do this week. Here's what you should do today. Hey, where are you at on that thing that you said you would do this week? So being fully autonomous, you guys tell me what you think needs to happen. You tell me what you need to make that happen. 
And then tell me what's getting in your way. And I'll go kick that out of the way and stay out ahead of you so that you can keep stride. Yeah. I can get that you do that leading the legal team, leading Mm -hmm. the HR team, and Mm -hmm. so on, in the areas that you don't have the qualification or the detailed experience to do the job. Mm -hmm. Can you easily manage to do the same with your finance team where – Okay, you started off as four hours doing it part time, probably doing Mm -hmm. everything yourself at the beginning. Yep. And you've had to hand that over to other people. Can you be as as hands off and let people get on with it in the finance area? Yes. Yes. What I tell people every time I've handed something off on that finance and accounting team is this is emotionless for me. So I'm going to share with you, here's what I am doing. And I can almost guarantee you, you have a better, quicker, more efficient way to do it or a nicer presentation or whatever else. Go do that. Don't ever feel like you have to kind of walk on thin ice and be like, hey, I know that maybe this is how you were doing it, but I think it'd be better if we do it this way. No, that's why I hired you. So when you're ready for the next challenge, let's see what we can take off my plate and go make it your own. I am very comfortable with failure, and that is a place that I am very passionate about leading from. If you can give people space to make mistakes, they will push boundaries so much further. I actually tell my team all the time that if we are executing flawlessly at everything, I'll probably be disappointed because that tells me we've gotten complacent and comfortable with where we are at. If we aren't saying like, oh, tried that and it did not go well or heads up, I did a thing and it was a disaster, then we're not trying enough new things. And where I have led in that area specifically is we have an all team meeting every single Monday at 8 a.m. We start every single week with the entire company coming together. Sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's 20 minutes. It depends on the week and what's going on. But as we are growing and changing and evolving so quickly, we find that it's super necessary to kind of set the tone for the week. Here's everything that happened last week. We, I believe, strongly in appreciation. So everybody, not everybody, we have weekly MVPs. Here's who knocked it out of the park last week. Let's recognize that. But then in those meetings as well, I have no problem standing in front of the entire company and saying, hey, I screwed up. I did a thing last week. I said this would be ready to go and it's not and it's on me. I apologize. I promise I'll get it to you on Thursday. Hey, we went right and turns out we should have gone left. Let's talk about what assumptions we made that I felt strongly that it was the right decision to go right. And turns out it was the wrong decision. And so I have no problem myself and the other people on the executive team discussing our own failures of here's where we tripped up. Here's what happened. Here's why we think it happened. Here's what we're doing so it doesn't happen again. And then other people have, it kind of gives permission, right? Of, well, if Melissa can screw up every single day in some capacity, then it's okay if I made that mistake too. I think almost everyone here kind of feels like nobody's upset if something goes wrong. We're more upset if somebody else is the one that found out something goes wrong. Like that's the easiest, that's when I'll get upset by a mistake is if I'm not the one that caught it, right? I didn't catch that simple error or I was moving too fast and I didn't see that thing before I sent it out. Or sometimes it's just wrong decisions. 
I'm a whole human. I'm imperfect. If you're looking for perfect, I'm not your girl. If somebody says that they are perfect, they're lying to you. But if that's what's going to make them feel good to say that, then let them do their thing. But I'm going to make mistakes as a leader. I'm going to make mistakes in the handling of the finances as a company. Hopefully, they're small things that are easily correctable. But those errors are going to happen. So I should expect nothing more than that from my team as well. They're going to make mistakes. So what are we doing about it? How did we get here? What went wrong? What did we learn from it? And how are you going to fix it? Do you need my help? I think that's really what I think is super important. And I believe really strongly in, especially in this like startup. I mean, we're out of the startup space at this point, but this like growing, evolving company, there's going to be missteps. It's going to be there in hundred year old companies. People are making errors there as well. Let's just own them. I think your biggest issues run when people try to sweep them under the rug, when they try to hide the errors because they're scared of some type of repercussion against them. So being really comfortable with failure being, and then I think just supporting my team to like, what do you need from me? I'm a servant leader through and through to my heart. Um, And so that's what I think my role is at the end of the day is whether it's a mistake, a new idea, or just as we're growing, what do you need from me? You so let me know. A servant leader, it. what do you need from me? Tell me a little bit more about what you think a servant leader means. I very much view my role is to take care of my team members, not the other way around. Sure, on a hierarchy chart, they work for me. They are direct reports, but I work for them. I make sure that they have what they need from me. So what issues can I help you solve? What do you need from me? Is there a decision that you need me to make? Uh, When do you need it by? But what, you know, where do you see your department going? We're having a lot of those conversations right now as you head into some, you know, 2023 planning. What does your department look like at the end of 2023? How are we going to get you there? And then what do you need from me to make that happen? Is it resources? Is it financial resources? Is it time? Is it sometimes it's grace, right? I I just need a little bit of time. I need three months here to kind of clean this stuff up and then let's talk about it. Okay. If that's what you need, that's what you need. I'm here for you in any way that's necessary, but um, that's really at, at its core. I feel as though I work for my team members, not the other way around. So, Melissa, working for your team members, accepting that failure happens, accepting that mistakes are made, but there's a difference in that between getting something wrong and underperforming. How in that culture do you deal with underperformance? Yeah. One thing I learned very early in my career is that most people who are underperforming don't know. And that is one of the biggest mistakes a leader can make. People are not as self-aware as you would like or hope that they are. So direct feedback is very powerful. I think it's really important to build an entire feedback loop. It goes every direction. I want feedback from people of where they need something different, more or less from me, whatever it may be, and then giving them feedback as well. I think people, leaders tend to be scared of some of those conversations. So I do work 
for my team, but I do also have expectations for them and making sure that those expectations are clear and then having them early in the process of like, hey, we got a thing going on and I don't think we're quite meeting expectations. Let's get back on the same page. That's the first thing always is like, are we on the same page? Have I always pause to take a look in the mirror? Have I made my expectations clear? I think that's very powerful um, dealing with something around that at home right now, right? Husbands and wives, they tend to fight sometimes of like having a little bit of a disagreement. And it's like, am I upset he didn't do something? Am I rightfully upset about it? Or did I ever even ask for him to do that? Right? Like were our expectations clear because people will meet your expectations more often than not. So having those conversations of first stopping and taking a look in the mirror, did I set clear expectations? Are we on the same page? That's on me to make sure that when somebody leaves my office, that we are all on the same page of what my expectations are, of whether that is a time frame or a budget or how well something will be done, whatever that expectation is, let's be very clear on it. And so when somebody's underperforming, first let's regroup. Let's get back on the same page. Do yes. we both understand the expectations the same way? And maybe a lot of times that's a quick course correct of like, okay, we we weren't on the same page. So now we are. Let's reiterate, let's make it perfectly clear. My expectations are A, B, and C. Yeah. Got it. We can do that. And then staying a little bit closer in that relationship. If we feel like maybe things are taking a turn the wrong direction and then following up on those expectations. Hey, when we talked last Thursday, we both agreed that we were clear that you would be able to put together this deliverable by this date. And you know, that date is quickly approaching. Are we on target to meet that expectation? Yep. Yep. We're good. And then whatever it may be, that expectation is either met and I'd like to confirm when things, when expectations are met, especially if there's any concern there of like, awesome, looks like we met expectations. We did what we said we were going to do. Everything's good on my end. Everything's good on your end. Are we clear of what's kind of coming next? Or they didn't. And then we've already confirmed we were on the same page. So then that's an easy conversation. What went wrong? When we met two Thursdays ago, when we met three months ago, depending on the size of the project or the scope of whatever it is we're discussing, we both agreed that we were on the same page that A, B, and C was going to happen. And A happened flawlessly, but B and C missed the mark. You know, what are we doing here? And then I view employment as a two-way street. And there have been brilliant people that have been on my team before that I am not a good fit. Maybe premier claims is not a good fit and having those conversations. There's all different shapes and sizes of careers out there, all different kind of expectations, hours, all of those things. So sometimes at the end, it might not, it just might not be a match that you could be great at what you do, but this company or my leadership isn't going to be a good fit. And then having that conversation, sometimes it's about giving somebody almost a little bit of grace to let go. Yeah. That you have right people, right seat. 
And I will look, if you are right people, I will advocate for you all day long. And maybe we just don't have the right seat here. So then have a conversation. Um, Cy Wakeman is one of my favorite authors of all time. And she has a saying that I use all the time of you can stay in joy or you can leave in peace and that there's no in-between option. And sometimes we get to that crossroad if somebody's underperforming or if we're just not a yin and yang and we're just not matching up to like have, we can't, we can't stay in this turmoil or in this like constantly, you would like my expectations to be something different or these hours aren't working for you or it's not working for your family. I mean, I told you in the beginning, I left a job that I love and I love to this day because it was no longer working for my family. I was great at it. They were amazing employer. It wasn't a fit for where my life was at at that time. And I made the decision to leave. And I think that was a very powerful conversation with my leader at that time, because I was saying like, I'm starting to feel almost some resentment building up. And she's like, it's time then go look for another job and keep me up to date on your progress. And so then sometimes it comes to that conversation where I see leaders go wrong. A lot of times is where you get to the point of a, a pip or even termination. And the person on the other side is like, what just happened? I thought I was doing a great job or even worse. Sometimes like you just gave me an excellent performance review have those conversations. To me, it's a sign of respect to have those conversations way earlier because more often than not, you can absolutely course correct and handle it. All of these are just relationships at the end of the day. And I always relate things to back home. The amount of times that my husband and I, I can just say like, okay, hold on, you're doing a thing that's driving me crazy. And we're just going to talk about it before we just like kind of bottle it up. Right. And I think leaders, a lot of times avoiding that conflict because they think it's going to be awkward. I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings. They are doing really great on these other 90% of things. So do I really want to mess up a relationship for this? I think it's a sign of respect to say, instead of dwelling on this or getting letting this build until we're at an impasse, let's just have the conversation now. Yeah. I've always followed a policy that says if you working for me, think that you're in the wrong job, you want to move on. Well, I want to know about that as early as possible. I don't want to know about that for the first time the day you come along to me and tell me you're resigning. I'd very much like to be helping you find the right opportunity, putting you in the right place because you as an individual are important. Yeah. I've been in that place where I've, I've definitely been in a role that was the wrong fit. Yeah. It can be uncomfortable. I've had, yeah, I've had two direct reports. I'll say recently within the last 18 months, one, her last day was last Friday, who came to me actually a year ago and said, I am terrified to have this conversation. And I was like, oh gosh, what's going on? And she's like, turns out I don't like accounting. And we kind of chuckled and I was like, I, I get it. And she's like, it doesn't fill my cup it does not fill my cup. And I was like, so what does that mean? And she was like, I don't know. I don't know, but it's eating away at me. And I just wanted to have the conversation with you. And I was like, well, let's 
like, so then what's next for you? And we really had a big conversation about what was next for her. And she spent a year until she just last Friday was her last day with the company of exploring what was next for her. And she went, I mean, a hard right into the like floral and plant space, like totally different career change, but we had that conversation. And then I had somebody on my team who was actually in marketing. She came to me and also said like, this doesn't, this drains me, this drains me. I'm good at it. And she was good at it, but she's like, this just does not excite me. I find myself avoiding things. And we had a conversation of, okay, so what things like, what about it do you like and how can it apply elsewhere? And she was no doubt, both of these women, no doubt were right people for the company and one moved on. And the other one, we found her a right seat within the company. And I think she fully, that one, I think she fully expected to be giving notice in that conversation. It probably was about 18 months ago is I would guess what her gut was telling her was that she was going to say like, oh my gosh, I just told my boss, I don't like my job. And that's not at all how I viewed it. Like I'm all in on you and I don't want you coming to work if you're not as excited as I am. Sure, there are people who are perfectly happy, like a clock in, clock out type of thing, and are able to kind of separate that way. But we spend so much time at work to not love it, to not feel energized by it. So have those conversations. One left the entire industry, accounting and finance industry as a whole, which meant there wasn't a seat I could come up with in a public adjusting firm for her. And another one, we found her a different seat. It took about six months and she is absolutely flourishing in it and is knocking it out of the park. And it's like, I'm now having totally separate conversations of like, you actually have to turn it off sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like an absolutely fantastic culture that you've built as a servant leader. Yeah, I, I love it. And I love this team. And I think... It can be so much more fulfilling for so many people and business as a whole of it doesn't have to be the stressful environment. We work hard. We work hard. And sometimes the hours are a lot because we do work property insurance claims. So like Hurricane Ian made landfall a month ago now, but the world that we live in means my entire sales team drove into the eye of a hurricane. Because that that's what we do. We're not a Monday through Friday, eight to five. And my customer service team doesn't get a clock out on Friday at five o'clock if one of our insureds just lost everything, whether that's their business or their home lives at time. It would be a disrespect to the industry and to the insurance yep. serve if we said like, okay, I'll get back to you on Monday at 8 a.m. because I have a weekend to get to. So certainly I think work in general could be so much more impactful if people really found right seats, but certainly the industry that we are in, it's really important that A, we're transparent about what our ask is, but then making sure that 
if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I love that saying. I know some people hate it, but I believe in it. And so those asks of some of some of the nights and weekends post catastrophe, it is less of a drain on somebody if they understand the value that they're bringing yes. to a company and to the insured. And then if they believe in their hearts, which I hope all of my team members would say, it's easy for me to say, but if they believe that they're appreciated by leadership and that their extra mile is seen and that it'll come back to them. Yes. So when we are not. How do you give those nights and weekends back to people when they've worked through them? You know, we do what we can. So we are, we are storm dependent. So A, to start with is being very clear in what the ask is before anybody works here. I've had several people who have given me feedback in an interview that they're like, it feels like you spent your interview trying to talk me out of working here. I was like, well, I did because I don't ever want me to say like, hold on. So-and-so is trying to call you. She has a question. And for you to turn to me and say, it's five o'clock, I'm out of here. And have it not have been clear, like back to setting expectations, right? So then we do what we can. So when it's not immediate post-storm where those kind of emergency mitigation type of things need to be handled, when you're three, four, five months into an insurance battle, the sense of urgency is a little bit less, but we do what we can. We have weekly goals where people can get out early. I encourage anyone to take time off. We have a flexible time off policy where we do track when we track the hours that people are off, but I actually track them for the opposite reason people would think because I can see them and say, oh my gosh, you know, this employee hasn't taken a day off in three months. Absolutely. You you automatically think that sort of tracking system is is big brother watching you, but can be there for exactly the opposite reason. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes for myself as well to get an occasional kick from our HR manager of Melissa, maybe you should take something that's not a sick day. And we have those conversations and we have a travel reward program at Premier. I think it's really important. I could get on a whole soapbox. I'll try to stay off of it, that there's so much benefit to travel for all parties. And a happy, healthy employee is self-servingly well for me as an employer as well. So those different things I can kind of earn almost like airline miles, we call them premier points that everybody can go on a trip of their choice that's paid for by the company. The size of that trip, the expense of that trip depends on kind of what rewards they've earned throughout the year. But A, I want you to take time off of work. And Mm -hmm. then I think travel is, it can give you more visionary ideas. It can refill your bucket, go spend time with the people that you want to spend time with, whether that's a family trip or a girl's trip or a solo. We have a couple people going on solo trips here soon that want to go backpacking or doing something else. Like go take care of you, go take care of you on my time as a thank you for everything that you've put in, because it can be a grind, especially post-catastrophe, something like a hurricane. So making sure that during that quieter time where, you know, February, March, there's not a lot of hurricanes, there's not a lot of hailstorms, tornadoes, those kind of things. So while we fight insurance claims year round, 
you do get a little bit of that downtime and uh, start to kick people out of here. Like go rest, go recharge, go do what you have to do, whether it's a day or a trip or whatever it may be. We make sure that we are giving back to them as much as what they are giving to us. Yeah. And there's definitely something in the work less, perform better. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we are four and a half weeks post hurricane and you're starting to see it. You can see it in people's faces. Mm. Uh, There's a light at the end of the tunnel of this like um, emergency immediate response, but you can for sure. I know from my own experience working consulting projects, sometimes when there's something urgent, you can work long hours, long, long weeks for a short while. Yes. You cannot go on and do that consistently week out, week in, week out, month in, month out. Yeah, you're so good. It works, but not all Starting to feel some heightened tensions. You know, people are a little shorter than what they would typically be. Or I think it comes back to leadership and understanding the people in your team. Watch people, keep an eye on them because you can tell when those things are happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can get burnout to the point of no return. And we got to make sure that we stay out ahead of it. Uh, Sometimes it feels like if you're facing a mountain of things that need to happen, going and taking the weekend off is not going to make that mountain any bigger or smaller. Like the mountain will still be there tomorrow. So make sure that you go and take care of yourself for sure. So Melissa, on that note, I'm sure that we could keep talking for the rest of the day here because this is all fascinating (laughs) stuff. But I I think we've probably gone on long enough for the average listener. Okay. Melissa, thank you hugely for being this week's guest on the Growth CFO Show. Thank you so much. It was a blast.